The book of Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah, turn to the second longest book of the Bible, which I don't know why this was a revelation to me this week, but I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. But be, behind the book of Psalms, the book of Jeremiah is the second longest book in your Bible. Jeremiah 32, the prophet Jeremiah, of course, these are his writings. He had what is, uh, what we could say is perhaps the, the most difficult and seemingly fruitless ministries of all of, of God's servants. He was called as a, a prophet during the reign of, of King Josiah and his people in the nation of Judah from that point on, would experience marked decline um, year by year. In other words, the best it ever got was at the beginning, and it was only down the hill from there. I don't know, sometimes we like to have that perspective, like we're going somewhere, like we're ascending, like you know, we're accomplishing something, uh, victory is, is coming, and and Jeremiah's life and ministry was the exact opposite. It was marked by severe decline, especially because right after Josiah, there were four kings who reigned in a rather short period of time over the nation of Judah. And during their reigns, things got progressively worse and worse and worse. Jeremiah is known um, by many as the weeping prophet, and that's largely because of just the horrible things that he both experienced and witnessed during his ministry, many of those things he predicted taking place. It was not as if they were surprises, but I can say honestly one of the most difficult parts of ministry is being able, not because of anything, any some sort of a special gift that God has given the ability to, to see things that no one else can see, but just through his wisdom and through what he says, you can see what is going to happen in the future. And again, that's not some sort of spiritual power. It's just applying what God says. You do this, this is going to happen. And so you can see the future. You can see someone decide, this is what I'm going to do. Pursue after that path. And the sad part is you know what's going to happen. You know the pain that's going to take place. You, you know the sadness. You, you know the, the, the desolation that's going to happen. You can see it coming. But you can't stop it. Because you know that the only person who can stop it is the, the, the person in the driver's seat, the person making the decisions, the, making those choices. You can plead with them, you can beg with them, and that's exactly what we see in Jeremiah's ministry. Pleading and begging and speaking God's truth, knowing what's going to happen and not being able to prevent it from happening because you're not the one making those choices. That's the kind of ministry that Jeremiah had. In Jeremiah 32, the chapter we're looking at today, it takes place right in the middle of, of some of the darkest days, or at least they're on the doorstep of some of the darkest days and difficult days. But I think what's most intriguing about this passage is what God asks Jeremiah to do. So look for that as we read, not necessarily an unfamiliar story, 
but one that we don't talk a lot about. But Jeremiah 31, we'll start reading in verse number 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. That's going to be an important detail in just a moment. Which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadrezzar. And that is just a, a different spelling for the name Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2, it says, For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though ye fight with the Chaldeans, ye shall not prosper. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. And Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even seventeen shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him in the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Heavenly Father, would you... Help us this morning. Would you help us to see the lesson that you were trying to teach through your prophet, Jeremiah? I pray that we would not just see this story as just an interesting thing that took place many hundreds of years ago, but rather a real-life Indication, a real life picture of the choices and the decisions that we need to make in our own lives today. Would you, would you apply your word this morning in a powerful way, in a way that intersects with real life and where we live? May we approach uh, the message, the, 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 what you have to give to us this morning, would you help us to approach it with an open heart and a teachable heart? the desire for you to show us what you have for us this morning. Pray for your, your, your help and guidance in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are things that God asks us to do. As believers, as Christians, there's things that God asks us to do, and when we look at them, they simply make sense to us. 
Um, with our experience and even through human logic, we can see what God says, we can observe the world around us, and we can see why God commands us to do certain things. We can see why those things are in our best interest and why rebelling against those commands and not doing what God asks us to do, we can see why that that is to our harm. If you look at the, the book of Proverbs, there's many uh, principles and, and uh, commands of God in the book of Proverbs that where we can see, if you have any experience whatsoever, if you live for any bit of time at all, you can see, oh, I, I, that makes sense to me. If, if, I, if I live this way, then I can expect uh, this as a result. Or if I live this way, I can expect this as a result. There's certain things that just make sense to us. However, there's just as many commands of God that don't make any sense at all. They don't make sense at all. They're things that God asks us to do that go against our human logic. They, they seem to fly in the face of, you know, how life works. Our experience. That's which we can uh, 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 sense and, and feel and uh, compartmentalize and put in order. Just flies in the face of that. Completely opposite of what would make sense to us. I mean, you just read, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we're not going to do so for sake of time this morning, but if you go to Hebrews 11, there's plenty of examples of God's commands to God's people that didn't make any sense at all. You know, commands like the command to Noah to build an ark. And specifically in Hebrews, we're told that Noah had not even seen rain, and yet God told him a flood was going to come, and he needed to build an ark. You talk about a command that didn't make any sense. But it was a command of God on the life of Noah. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham, who God commanded to leave his homeland. To go to a place that he would show him. Didn't even tell him where it was, but you'll know it. I'll tell you when we get there. How does that work with your kids, by the way? I'll tell you when we get there. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what Abraham was commanded to do. Of course, ultimately, or the ultimate example of this in Abraham's life, God telling Abraham to go and to take the life of his only son, Isaac, to offer him as a sacrifice. Talk about a command that didn't make any sense. You can continue reading in Hebrews 11 and talk about Moses who turned his back on his royal heritage, the, the heritage of Pharaoh, because that's something that he felt God wanted him to do. Talk about something that didn't make any human sense at all. And of course, all of this is possible. This obedience is possible to commands that don't make any sense. It's made possible by something that we call faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, faith and obedience go hand in hand. They go together. Faith is believing God to the point of being willing to obey whatever he says. 
no matter if it makes sense, and I'm glad there's some times where it just makes sense, but then faith is believing and believing to the point of obedience when it doesn't make any sense. James says faith without this obedience, without these works, faith without works is dead, being alone. True faith means believing God enough for obedience to take place in our lives. And there's, there's no place where we see faith so clearly as we do when God asks not for something that makes sense to us, not for something that just, you know, is the, the logical next step, not for something that we understand, but faith is seen when God asks of us something that just doesn't make sense. And we see such a situation in the life of Jeremiah in this passage. God asks him to do something that just doesn't make sense. And we see a beautiful example of obedience when it just doesn't make sense. You'll notice we read in the first five verses, number one, we see some dire circumstances. It can't get a whole lot worse for God's servant Jeremiah than it is in the context of the first five verses of this chapter. It can't get much worse than this. We notice something about his city in verses 1 and 2. He's in the city of Jerusalem. And his city of Jerusalem, we're told in verse number 2, is experiencing a siege. They are under siege. The, The king of Babylon and his armies have completely surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They have been there for over a year. So we're not just at the beginning of this. We've already experienced quite a bit of this already. The entire countryside, the entire nation of Judah surrounding the city of Jerusalem has been conquered. It's it's been captured. It's in the hands of the Babylonians. And now they've surrounded Jerusalem and are just basically waiting it out until the end. Uh, Verse 24 in this chapter describes the conditions in the city using the words famine and pestilence. Of course, famine, your city's surrounded. There's no way to get food in. You're living off of that which was stored up in the past. And eventually that's going to run out, and it had already begun to run out, and there was famine as a result. Along with that, coinciding with that, you have everyone in those conditions crammed in in, in those close quarters, just waiting things out. You have sickness, disease, pestilence. That's what the city of Jerusalem is experiencing. So it's under siege, but not only that, it's also threatened. In verse 24, Jeremiah describes the, the, uh, the state of the city. He says, Behold, the mounts, they are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. What are these mounts? These are, the, the, these are siege ramps. And a siege ramp is when the, the army would, would, would just collect whatever it is they could collect, whatever debris they could gather together from the, from the cities that they had conquered, and they would pile it up against the wall and pile it up and pile it up and pile it up until there, there was a nice convenient ramp to the top, and they could take their armies right in over the walls and take the city. And so they could look outside the city, and the, the ramps, the siege ramps were being built. They're, they're under threat. Things are not good. The days of Jerusalem are numbered. It's only a matter of time. I mentioned here in uh, verse 1, the 10th year of Zedekiah. 
If you want to compare that, just flip a few pages forward to Jeremiah 39. It gives us a little bit of an, of an outline of the reign of, of King Zedekiah and what's going on at this period of time. It says, Jeremiah 39, verse 1, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. All right, so the ninth year is when the siege began. We're in the tenth year. So we know that it's been approximately about a year that they've been under siege. But look then in verse 2. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. So literally, the days of Jerusalem are numbered. They have only have the longest period of time, 12 months, or it's probably much shorter than that, before the inevitable is going to take place. And so, if you're paying attention at all, and you're living in the city of Jerusalem, if you got any observation abilities and logic at all, you know that defeat and destruction are around the corner. So Jeremiah's city is in dire straits, but I want you to notice his message. Now, his message is, is communicated by King Zedekiah, but I want, I want you to notice what the word is that God has given Jeremiah to preach. In verse 3, it says, um, if you kind of skip down to the middle of the verse, you find the, where the message begins. It says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes, and he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Jeremiah had a message. He had a message for the city in verse 3. The city is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. That's Jeremiah's message for the city. There's also a message for her king. King Zedekiah shall not escape. And you, King Zedekiah, you are going to see the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see him eyeball to eyeball. And incidentally, it will be the last thing that Zedekiah sees, the eyeballs of King Nebuchadnezzar, because then Nebuchadnezzar is going to have his eyes taken out and he's going to live with those images for the rest of his days. That's Jeremiah's message for the king. But then Jeremiah in verse 5 also has a message for the armies at the end of verse 5. Basically, he says, Though ye fight, you will not prosper. Ye shall not prosper. The message is repeated uh, just a few verses later in verse 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans that shall fight against this city shall come and set fire on this city and burn it with the houses upon whose roofs they have offered incense unto Baal and poured out drink offerings unto other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. Not exactly the most uplifting 
message to deliver. God's judgment is coming. You deserve it. Here's why. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. I mean, this is, these are the circumstances of Jeremiah. His city is under siege. It's about to be overthrown. His message is the darkest and bleakest that could possibly be. And that message has led to, verse number two, his suffering. Jeremiah is suffering because of the message that God gave him. Verse two describes it for us. He, he, he's described as being shut up in the court of the prison. If you want to just skip ahead to th- chapter 38, verse number one, you see a little bit of how this happened. Jeremiah chapter 38, verses one through six. Verse one introduces us to some specific princes of Judah, some lower level rulers, and how they heard the word that Jeremiah had spoken unto the people, saying, and this was this message again, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey and shall live. And Jeremiah says, this is a hopeless situation. If you don't want to experience all the bad that's coming, just surrender and surrender now. Verse 4, Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakened the hands of the men of war that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, and speaking such words unto them, For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he's in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. So you see the plot against Jeremiah. He's accused and hastily tried, we could say, for the, for the, the crime of treason. And they convicted him of treason. And specifically, this would lead to uh, these men, these princes, throwing Jeremiah into the dungeon, into the pit of the dungeon. And he would have died there had not been for one man named Ebed-Melech. And that man was a, a eunuch who served underneath King Zedekiah, who went and told Zedekiah, if you keep him down there, he's not going to survive. He's going to die. And the king whether reluctantly or not, he was, he's a bit of a vacillating guy. He just kind of was all over the place. He said, why don't you pull him out of there? And they were able to at least pull him out of there. But now, he's still in prison. He's just not sinking in, in the mud up to his, um, to, up to his armpits like, it was, like it's described for us. He's still in prison. And even if he could escape, if he could get out of prison, there were these men who were kind of waiting in the wings wanting to kill him. And even if he could escape the death threats that were, that were uh, you know, knocking on his doorstep, there were the Babylonians who were outside the city, surrounding the city. There was no place for him to go. And all of this was taking place because Jeremiah had been obedient to what God had revealed to him. Dire circumstances that he's in. And if that weren't enough, at least the number two, what we read about in verse six and seven, bizarre direction. Or a bizarre command from God. God tells him in verse number 7 that a guy named Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, which was his cousin, thine uncle's son, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth. God's direction to Jeremiah included a prediction, a prophecy, of what was about to take place. And God told him 
to expect a visit from a very opportunistic cousin, Hanamiel. And the primary purpose of this visit was not a, uh, a personal care visit. It was not to check up on Jeremiah, how are you doing? Are you being fed? Do you, do you have something to eat? Uh, are you being cared for? Not, not at all. He's got an agenda. He's got something that he wants his cousin to do. And that is to, to buy a worthless field. He says, I got a field. And I, and, and I really like for you to buy it for yourself. I mean, this is the, the, the real estate deal of the century. All right. I've got it. I'm, I'm going to offer it to you. It seems like we don't know exactly what the sale price was as far as the equivalent. It seems like the price is 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 bargain level. He's he's given him a deal or so it would seem. We'll see why in a second that that not necessarily the case. So God says your, your cousin's going to come. He's going to offer you a field. He's going to want you to, to buy this field for yourself. And the reality is that that field couldn't be sold unless Jeremiah formally refused it. So he had to go through Jeremiah in the first place. And that was because there was a provision in God's law so that the land would stay within uh, the, 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 each tribe's control and, the, and that one tribe couldn't necessarily take over another tribe. And so God had set it up so that family members would have first dibs and, and would have the right to, to purchase any pieces of property that would be needed to be sold uh, for, for, for money or for resources or anything like that. So it was, it was God's plan to keep um, the property kind of in the family. And that's why Hanamiel says, the right of redemption is thine to buy it. That's what he's referring to. But the reality is that the reason he's coming to Jeremiah is that he couldn't, he couldn't sell this to anyone else. He had to go through Jeremiah first. Not that anyone else would even want it. But Jeremiah had to be the first one to go through uh, in the beginning. So the field couldn't be sold outside of Jeremiah. It was a field that was already in the hands of the Babylonians. The city of Anathoth was just to the north and east of Jerusalem. If the armies of Babylon were surrounding the city, that field would have already been conquered and already in their control. So the enemy already has it. What good is the title deed to, the pro- to a property that someone else is controlling? Doesn't do any. Uh, doesn't do any, any good. And it's worth. It's, it, it's worthless land, in exchange for seventeen shekels of silver. The only thing that was had any value or would have any value in the months ahead was some spending money, uh, some money that might get you by what's about ready to take place. And even though you know on the monetary value, this is you know could be described as a good deal. It's worthless. For the foreseeable future. Worthless. So there's a visit from an opportunistic cousin, an offer of a worthless field. But then God reveals all of this to Jeremiah because God gives him a command to purchase. And this command is so strange that God had to kind of tell him about what was going to happen ahead of time. Just so that he wouldn't completely dismiss the offer without even thinking about it. Because that's how ridiculous this offer would have been. Now, he doesn't exactly say that God commands him to do it. However, in verse 25, we didn't read it. If you want to look there, it says, Jeremiah says to God, And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money, and take witnesses for or because the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And at first I was like, what, what is this exactly saying? But 
from what I can tell, from, from what it says, God's saying, buy the field and make sure you have witnesses for the purchase of that field because the city is going to be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Nobody's going to believe that this actually took place. So make sure there were some people witnessing this because the city is about to be destroyed and, and the Babylonians are going to take over. I mean, this is bizarre. This is strange. God says, go out and make sure it's a proper purchase. And that's what he describes in verses 10 and 11. Real money being exchanged, proper procedure for real estate transactions, proper documentation. And specifically in verse 11, it describes a document that was sealed and then one that was open, which was the proper procedure for the time. So one was sealed up and and not open, and there was a duplicate copy that was open that you could look at, and that was kind of proof that was evidence. So it was a proper purchase. In verse 12, it was described as, it's described as a public per- purchase where everyone in the... Where, this is kind of a strange scene, if you can use your imagination. Everyone there in the court of the, the prison... We're still in prison, by the way. All right, Everyone in the court of the prison is, prison is witnessing this take place and wondering, what in the world is Jeremiah doing? I mean, it's one thing to be able to obey God and, and do it in a private sense and not embarrass yourself. But, I mean, this is out in the open for everyone to see. And then God designed and God stated as part of this command in verse 14 that it was to be a preserved purchase. And that's the idea of taking these documents and putting them in earthen vessels and clay jars. That was one of the best way, ways to preserve documents, if you remember the Isaiah scrolls being discovered uh, not, not too long ago, being in those clay jars. So these, were, these documents were to be sealed up. In other words, Jeremiah's foolish choice, if we could put it that way, foolish choice being forever memorialized for generations to come so that everybody could know what he did. It's a bizarre command, bizarre direction from God. It leads us to number three. We see some lingering questions. Lingering questions. Now, reading it quickly, as we did this morning, you might not detect this. It kind of just seems like God said, here's what you're supposed to do. And Jeremiah just said, okay, all right. And he did it. But if you look a little bit closer, you see that, and if you know anything about human nature, put yourself in that situation you know that you'd have some lingering questions. And Jeremiah had some lingering questions. What were some of those questions? Well, one is found at the end of verse number 8. Remember, God told him exactly what's going to take place. Your cousin is going to come. He's going to offer you a field, and I want you to buy it. Sure enough, Jeremiah gets a visitor. It's his cousin. He offers him a field, wants Jeremiah to buy it. It's exactly what God is. You notice what, how the verse ends. Then... I knew that this was the word of the Lord. In other words, there were some questions. Questions that both preceded Jeremiah's decision and postdated his decision uh, of, of whether or not to obey God. The first question, did God really say that? Did, is this really what God wants? Did he really speak to me? There were some doubts in his mind. That's a powerful question. Did God really say that? That question's so powerful, that's, that's something that the enemy uses against us. That's something that Satan used against Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he said, hath God said? Did God really say that? And of course, his purpose in that is to deter, distract our obedience. 
It's a powerful question. Sometimes we see God's clear commands for us in Scripture, that which God wants us to do, those commands that just don't make sense, and we wonder, did God really say that? Many times the answer to that question is, you better believe He did. He did. It's clear. God made Himself clear because that's exactly what took place. And when it, when it happened, exactly as God said it would happen, it was at least an initial answer to the question, did God really say that? And then Jeremiah's second question, you have to read the whole chapter. We don't really have time to, to read the entirety of it. But we see some lingering questions in verse 24. We read the first half of, of 24 where Jeremiah just lays out his observations. He says, behold, the mounts, look. <laughs> look, the, the siege mounts, the, the mounts, they're, they're coming to the city to take it. The city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass. And behold, thou seest it. You see this, God. And thou said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money and take witnesses? God, I, I know what you asked me to do. But I'm just wondering, how does this make any sense? By the way, I'll point out that this seems to, the, 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 these questions, this one specifically, seems to have taken place even after he made the decision to obey. And boy, isn't that a parallel with our lives where even after we make the right decision, there's that nagging doubt. I don't see how this makes any sense. I don't see how what God has asked of me is going to work out well for me. I, I don't see how following God's plan for life and, and doing what He asked me to do, I don't see how this is going to work out well for me. I see a path my own way. That way makes sense. That way gets me to my destination. That way uh, takes care of my needs. That way I can see how everything is going to work out. But I don't see that with God's plan. How is this making any sense? This is what Jeremiah is struggling with. Now, there is an answer. God is patient with an answer. In verse 15, he gives an answer. His answer is simply, houses and vineyards and lands will be sold, will be possessed again in this land. Now, that isn't very descriptive. I mean, of course, these things were going to be possessed. Even underneath Babylonian control, these things are going to be possessed again. So not all of the details are here, but God does reveal a little bit as to the reason of why. But it still doesn't quite connect because Jeremiah doesn't see, okay, you say this is going to happen, but I see a huge gap between what is happening and what you say is going to happen. How are we going to bridge these two things? This is what I see. This is what my senses tell me. This is what my heart tells me. And this is what you say is going to happen. There's miles in between. I don't see how this is going to work out. So, he struggles with the question, did God really say that? He struggles with the question, how does this make any sense? He struggles with the question, can God really do that? Now, in verse 17, we see Jeremiah's rather eloquent prayer, and it is an eloquent prayer that he speaks 
I think he's trying to convince himself a little bit of, of it, but we'll talk about that just in, in a second of what he's doing. But he says in verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth and by thy great power and stretched out, uh, out arm and there is nothing too hard for thee. And we say, wow, amen to that. He's in a good place. You notice how God answers him in verse 27, though? God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Wait a minute. I thought Jeremiah just said, There's nothing too hard for you, God. And then, then as I was thinking about this, it, it dawned on me. Oh, I've done this very same thing. Oh, the words. Nothing's impossible with God. Nothing's too hard for God. God can change any situation. I'm not so sure about mine, though. I don't see the possibility of how this person, this difficult person that I'm dealing with is going to change. I don't see the possibility of this bill going away. I don't see the possibility of this situation ever resolving itself or, or getting any better. It's words and we still got those doubts. And I think we see that in Jeremiah. Where he's having some trouble seeing how in the world this is exactly going to happen. And I think if we were in the same place, we would have the same doubts. And I think if you, if you are applying this message to yourself and looking in your own life, you can see, yeah, I've been there. Or even this morning, you can identify, I am there. And I'm struggling with something that God is asking me to do. And I just don't see how this makes any sense. I just don't see how this is going to work out for me if I do things God's way versus my way. And there's some lingering questions. But the beauty in this passage is what we see in verses 9 and 10, and that is, number four, there is simple obedience. Simple obedience. Verse 9, and I bought the field. I bought the field. I did what God told me to do. I did what God commanded me to do. In spite of what I could see, my eyes told me the city is about to be destroyed. The Babylonians are taken over. They already control the land anyway. It's theirs. It's not going to be really mine uh, anyway. There's no way financially I'm going to benefit from this decision. My eyes tell me that this doesn't make any sense. But Jeremiah obeyed anyway. This was in spite of what Jeremiah knew. God had revealed to him the future. God told him, this is exactly what's going to happen. This city will be defeated. It will be conquered. There's nothing you can do, nothing the armies of Israel can do to stop it. This is what he already knew. And why what God told him, what God asked of him, didn't make any sense. But he obeyed anyway. This was in spite of the questions that that were in his heart, that lingered in his heart even after he obeyed, in spite of the questions. And sometimes I think we, 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 we have this um, overly optimistic viewpoint where we, we struggle with questions about being obedient to God, and then we obey and all the questions go away. It's kind of like, and they lived happily ever after. And rarely does it work out that way. Even after the purchase was made, 
He's got these questions. But in spite of the questions in his heart, in spite of those questions that, that told him what God is telling me to do doesn't make sense. God's path in this situation doesn't make sense. I don't see how this works out. In spite of those things, he obeyed God. He obeyed God. This is something so simple and so foundational to the Christian life, but we get it mixed up at times. We know, we have memorized Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. Lean not. Our understanding is that crutch that we are used to, we are comfortable leaning on. It's, it's the, the, the crutch that, that, that uh, when, when we're leaning on it, when we're depending on it, when we're utilizing it, that's our place of comfort. That's our place of, of safety. When I can look out and make the decisions based on what I think is going to happen and how I think things are going to work out, I feel comfortable. I feel safe in that position. You knock the crutch out. Now you're in a place of trust. Lean not on thine own understanding. God wants obedience even when it doesn't make sense. And it is faith that says, I believe God, therefore I must obey Him even when it doesn't make sense to me. We see something else, though, in this passage. I think something that encourages us, and I'll just throw this in as a bit of an aside, but I don't want to gloss over it. When Jeremiah was struggling with these doubts, when he was dealing with the unsettledness of, of I don't understand, God, why did you tell me to do this? I, I don't get it. You'll notice what he does. In verses 16 all the way down uh, to about verse 25. Jeremiah takes those doubts and those concerns and those struggles and he takes them to God. This is the beautiful thing. God is not just in heaven demanding absolute obedience. If you don't do what I say, then the relationship is over. No, he, he, he demands obedience. He does. He is a God who not only deserves our obedience, but demands our obedience. But then he's long suffering enough that when we have doubts, we have fears, we have struggles with what God has asked us to do, that God's okay with us bringing our doubts and fears and questions to Him. In fact, that's the only appropriate place to bring our questions and doubts and fears. Have you ever noticed how resistant your flesh is to that? Well, you want to rehearse those questions, doubts, and fears up here and in here. You want to you wanna, uh, just like, like the, uh, the hamster on the hamster wheel. You just want to round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And God says, bring those to me. And there's something that resists that. I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. Jeremiah did. And I think, I think we, we see a very important lesson that's there. But Jeremiah obeyed. In spite of what he could see, in spite of what he knew... In spite of the questions in his heart, he obeyed. And what he did, and I'm not even sure he knew exactly what he did and what was accomplished by what he did. 
But think about this. Jeremiah's actions became a testimony to the character of God. Because what God was communicating was the fact that, yes, things were bad. The, the, the Babylonians, he was using them specifically to judge his people. The city of Jerusalem is going to be wiped off the map. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be a terrible time. The, 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 the people of Judah were going to be taken captive for 70 years. God was going to do all of those things. But that's not where God was going to leave it. God was going to bring them back. After that generation had, had passed and God's work was done, He was going to bring them back. And He was going to restore those people to that land. Like we've been talking about in the book of Haggai. The temple was going to be rebuilt. Lands and vineyards were going to be purchased and sold once again. Why? Because God is a God of long-suffering and mercy and love. And what Jeremiah did in his obedience is he gave testimony to the love, the long-suffering, the care of God. His actions threw a spotlight on who God is. If you are a believer, if you are a born-again Christian, then there's something about that that ought to spark your heart. That, that God would use me to glorify Him. That God would use my life to highlight how great He is. There, there, there is nothing like it in the world. And Jeremiah's actions left behind a testimony to the character of God. Because it is in our obedience in the present that gives a demonstration of what God declares to be true about the future. That's a powerful statement. So our obedience in the present gives a clear demonstration of what God declares to be true in the future. So God declares something in the future. We looked at this this morning, didn't we? In the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. God declared something to be true. It didn't quite fit with what Habakkuk saw. He struggled with it. But when Habakkuk chose to obey and to trust God, his obedience gave a demonstration to, yes, what God said is actually true, even though right now I don't exactly see it. But I believe it to be true. And as we heard this morning, the just shall live by faith. And it is faith that causes us to obey when it just doesn't make sense. So can I ask you this morning, what area of obedience do you need to surrender to God today? What is it? For some, it could be as simple as being obedient to the gospel. God said, you are a sinner. You have violated my law. You had violated my holiness. Therefore, I cannot fellowship with you. I cannot offer you an eternity with me for, eterni for, for eternity, for, for all of time. That, that, that fellowship cannot take place. Your sin stands between me and you. And I have provided a way to get rid of that sin. I have sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for that sin. 
He's the one who took it out of the way and you need to trust in Him. You need to place all of your faith in Him. That's the only way of salvation. That's the only way of being assured in eternity in heaven. And to our logic and to our reasoning, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What makes more sense is if I could do a bunch of good to somehow make up for the bad that I've done, that makes sense to me. That's logical to me. That fits in my paradigm of how things work. And God says, that's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you to obey the gospel. And there'll be doubts. There'll be questions. There'll be one, is this going to work? Did God really say that? Uh, Can God really do that? There'll be some questions in your heart. And it is faith that says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to take that step in spite of the questions. And some of those questions may even linger after I take that step. I'm still going to obey the gospel. I'm going to step out by faith and receive the gift of salvation. For some of you just need to stop listening to the doubts. Stop listening to the idea that someday you're going to figure things out. And just obey. Just obey the gospel. For some, we get all, boy, there's so much knowledge and wisdom out there of how you should do things, how you should earn a living, how you should raise your children, how you should treat people. Boy, a lot of those things make a lot of sense. We spend a lot of time on YouTube listening to, you know, some guy who, we don't know who it is, but it seems like he has it it really figured out. And that's what I'm going to, oh, he wrote a book. Okay, all right. He wrote a book. Good for him. That makes sense to me, but that doesn't necessarily fit with the simple commands of God. That doesn't make it doesn't fit in with the simple things that God already says. So which is it? The way that appeals to you and makes sense to you or the way that God has already clearly laid it out? But I'll I'll earn more money. You might. You might. You won't have the success that, that God wants you to have. Well, I'll do what God wants, but I'll do it my own way. Good luck with that. Because God has already said that your way, there's an end. And remember, obedience is that idea, a demonstration of what God says will happen in the future, not what we think will happen in the future. Is there an area of obedience today that you need to surrender to God? And maybe the better way to say it is if the just live by faith, when was the last time? that you obeyed in spite of what your senses were telling you, in spite of what your your mind was telling you, in spite of the realities on the ground. When was the last time you obeyed? If you're a true believer, then this should be normal for us. How does God want you to demonstrate faith and obey Him today? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand to your feet? And I trust that you will consider that question today. How does God want you to demonstrate faith and obey Him when it just doesn't make sense? The attitude that God wants is the attitude of our invitation song today, and that is, I surrender all. God, whatever you want. And as Brother Joel plays that song on the piano here this, uh, softly this morning. God spoke to your heart right there where you are. Sit at your seat. Come forward if you want to use the, the altar. Whatever you feel God wants you to do, be obedient to Him. Talk to Him. Give that area to Him and 
Just say, God, I want to be obedient. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't have it figured out. There's a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. I don't see where this is going. But I surrender to you and I'll be obedient. 